0: Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Hey everyone, William Hemsworth here. Hope everyone is doing well. It's been a while since I've done a show, um, so my apologies for that. I haven't been feeling very well over the last couple weeks, not the RONA i test the negative. I some bad allergies. Bad allergies, that's that time of year. So let's hop back into it here. Um, let's talk about the woman at the well, Jesus and the woman at the well. We all know that story. It's a great story. It's in John's gospel. It's in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. And I encourage all of you to go ahead and read it because it's a fantastic story. And it gets down to the heart. Jesus's mission in a a lot of ways. But what I want to talk about today is the background behind it. So what exactly are we looking at here? Because sometimes we read this story in our modern lenses, in our modern context, and I think we lose sight of exactly what's happening here. Because there is a lot that is going on in um, in this story. So, again, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26 is, is what we're going to look at. Now, I'm not going to read that, though, but I encourage you to do so. Because John's gospel helps us understand who Jesus is. So, John has a higher Christology than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or the Synoptics, and it was the last gospel written. I mean, it starts off with in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's the personification of God's Word, of the person of Christ. And so when we read this story of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verse 1 through 26, some things may come up. First and foremost, it continues on the theme of the previous two stories in John's gospel about Gentiles coming to faith. Secondly, it depicts Jesus fleeing from the Pharisees because he was getting very popular. He was even more popular at this point than John the Baptist was. But we also see a series of social and historical clues that sometimes in the, here in the 21st century we may miss. Now, one thing that we do know for certain is that this interaction is a pivotal moment in the ministry of our Lord. He's interacting with a woman that was at a well alone. He was in Samaria. And a theological discussion about proper worship breaks out. And lastly, we have one of the most clear declarations that Jesus makes about his own identity. Now, through it all, our Lord puts aside the various prejudices of the day to show love, mercy. And really, he gives us a blueprint on how to evangelize. So, again, a lot is going on here. So, who are the Samaritans? Because that's a pivotal... That's something we have to understand when it comes to this passage. He's talking to the Samaritan woman in Samaria. So, who are the Samaritans? Now, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom, which fell to the Assyrians in 722 BC. When the Assyrian government conquered the northern kingdom, they deported many Israelites and Gentiles came into the land. So the foreigners come in, they marry the Israelites that were left, and they mix their religion with the religion of Israel. Now, there is a tradition that states that the Samaritans were the descendants of Shechem. And we read about Shechem in Genesis 34 and Sirach 50. And what we read isn't flattering. Basically, he raped Dina, who was the daughter of Jacob. So the Samaritans deny this, and they claim that they're descendants of Joseph via Manasseh and Ephraim. And so they claim to be faithful Israelites. So Israelites call Samaritans apostates. Samaritans call the Israelites apostates. It's a very fun relationship. Okay. So ethnic origin definitely is a contributing factor to the hostility between the two groups. However, it was also strained because of the religious differences between the two. As a result, Samaritans avoided Jews, and the Jews avoided Samaritans. Samaritans believed that God was to be worshipped on Mount Gerizim. Now, eventually, that would be moved to Shiloh, and so they kind of broke their own command in a way. Now, from a scriptural standpoint, the Samaritans only acknowledged the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as scripture, and they don't accept the prophets or the writings. Now, there were conflicts between the two groups as well, which involved each other's temple. John Heracanus led an army into Samaria, into Samaria and destroyed their temple. The Samaritans also killed pilgrims that were going to Jerusalem on occasion, and they, had, and depending who you believe, they tried to defile the temple in Jerusalem at one point. So there's no love loss between the two groups. Okay, so that brings us to John four one through twenty six, and it's not my intent here to give a thorough exegesis or an exposition on this passage, but to give you background, and that will help you in your exegesis, in your exposition of this passage. So we're going to look through verse through verse and try to get as much background information as possible to help us understand this interaction a little more. Okay? There is so much contained in these verses that goes unseen, but it helps us understand the text a lot more. So, let's begin with John 4.1. So, John 4.1 begins with Jesus and his disciples. They left Judea, and they, they started en route to Galilee. John is careful to say that Jesus had to go through Samaria in verse 4. Josephus gives us some information on this journey. Not specifically on Jesus' journey, but on that journey in general. This would have been a three-day journey if one would go through Samaria. Now, there was a longer way, which consisted of following the Jordan River and crossing into the town of Perea. It was much shorter, but you had to cross the Jordan two times. And depending on the time of the year, it could be a treacherous journey when the Jordan is flooded out, okay? So it had been previously thought that the situation between the Jews and Samaritans was so bad that the Jews would not pass through Samaria. Josephus tells us something different. He gives us historical evidence that shows that many Jews traveled through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem, and that was actually the preferred route for many of them. In verses 4-6, through six, we read that Jesus and his disciples came to the town of Secher or Sechar, depending on how you want to pronounce it, at the sixth hour of the day. And they came to the site of Jacob as well. Now, Secher is uh, most often identified as the village of Asgar. This village is on the base of Mount Ebal, which is opposite of Mount Gerizim. However, others identify it with Shechem, which is only about 250 feet away from Jacob's Well, while Asgar is closer to a mile. So the site of Jacob's Well, it's still prominent today. In fact, if you go on a tour of the Holy Land, this is one of the sites that you can go to. And so as far as archaeological sites go, its location is certain. It's concrete. We know exactly where it is. Now, what's interesting about this well is that the well is very deep. It's between 85 and 100, 100 feet deep. But the well is also very unique in that it's not just stagnant water in there. It's a, it's the a The well taps into a running stream and it actually still yields water. John tells us that Jesus stops at this well at the sixth hour, and this is in John 4, 6. Now, In our terms, this translates to noon, and the heat of the day was having a big impact on our Lord. It was hot, he was tired, and he rested at the well. And it wasn't uncommon in those times to start a journey at sunrise. Um, Remember, there were no cars, no horse and buggy. It was done by walking, and it was exhausting. It was also common to retreat inside around noon to take cover from the heat of the day. So, one would refresh themselves with food, drink, and even take a siesta. Yes, they would take a nap to refresh themselves, okay? It was at this time that the Samaritan woman enters the picture. This is in John 4, 7. With everyone taking shelter to avoid the heat, she does the opposite and goes to the well. Now, this broke the standard convention of doing things. Going to the well was a social time, and women would often go to the well in a group, and this would... And they would go in the morning to avoid the heat of the day. Now, the fact that she was alone indicates that she was like a social outcast. And that would actually be revealed later on in this chapter. In the ancient world, the well was a place of encounter. Okay, there were, now there's examples of this in the book of Genesis, for example. In Genesis 24, there's the encounter that the servant of Abraham had with Rebekah, and Genesis 29 with Rachel. Now, to put it bluntly, sometimes one would go to the well to find a spouse. When the Samaritan woman arrived at the well while Jesus was there, it was a scandal. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that. There was a scandal in that day. Jewish men did not talk to women in public. And a Samaritan woman was even worse as they were considered unclean. Nevertheless, Jesus looks past these cultural norms and he asks her for a drink. Now, understandably, the woman is surprised since a Jew is not only alone with her, not only alone with her at the well, but is speaking to her. John hints at this when he states, quote, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans in verse 9. Now, though this is the case, there were some exceptions made, as his own disciples demonstrated because they went into the town to buy food. Now, what follows is an interesting conversation about living water. And we know this passage. Okay, we love this passage, okay? This happens when the Samaritan woman balks at Jesus' request for water. And Jesus responds with a statement about living water in John 4.10. In a stunning move, she asks if Jesus thinks he is better than Jacob, since Jacob gave a well with running water. Which was running water is considered living water. Okay. So in the technical sense, living water is water that is clean or fresh, but there's a little bit more at play here in early Jewish literature, such as first Enoch and Jubilees among others. Water is depicted as a life giving symbol. Of course, we see that with the sacrament of baptism as, you know, water washes away original sin and all sin and, as as a result of that, were adopted into the family of God. Now, still in other places, such as for Ezra and the Apocalypse of Abraham, those depict living water as anything living. So this can include plant life. Okay, so water is a symbol of restoration and life. Again, like kind of like we see in baptism. Now, there was also a rabbinic tradition that spoke of the Torah as God's gift of living water. John understands his double meaning here, and his audience in the first century would have caught it as well. In verse 12, we get a glimpse at one of the disputes between Samaritans and Jews. The Samaritan woman brought up Jacob as being the father of the people. The Jewish people would also claim the same. The Jewish teaching of the time was that the Jews were purebred, so to speak, while the Samaritans contained much Jewish, much non-Jewish blood. Excuse me. And Josephus points this out as at length in his Antiquities. Josephus essentially calls the Samaritans dishonest, and says that when the Samaritans stand to benefit from something, they say that they descend from Joseph. Now the Samaritans do claim to be descended from Joseph, but through his sons Manasseh. And Ephraim. Jesus makes a big claim in four fourteen about anyone who drinks of his water will never thirst again. Here's that full verse: But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. This would have sounded familiar to Jewish audiences since it brought to mind Sirach twenty four twenty one. The woman takes Jesus literally here and and wants this water. So she does not have to carry this large vessel on her head during the heat of the day anymore. Now, the conversation takes a turn in 4, 16 through 19. But there are some historical nuances that are important here. Jesus asked the woman to bring her husband, and she says that she does not have one. Now, to our modern ears, this sounds like not much is happening. However, the wells were our water coolers in our office, basically. And this is where conversations happened. Wells were also places that one could go to find spouses. And I gave a couple examples already, but another is Exodus chapter 2 with uh, Moses and his wife. Now, the question that Jesus asked her about her husband could have been construed as a flirtatious act by the woman. I'm not saying that's what Jesus did, but the woman... Could have seen it that way married women also traditionally wore a head covering and she may not have been wearing one the woman has no husband and jesus tells her what what is in her past she's had five husbands and this is important now this is this was a problem at the time and to be honest it's a problem today even though society's trying to normalize that people would think that there was something wrong with her if she was divorced and widowed that many times It was rabbinic tradition that one should not marry more than three times. And she was also living with someone, and Jesus brings this into the forefront as well. This was taboo during the time, and really still is, even though society has kind of normalized it. But anyway, this was taboo during the time, and there was no such thing as common law marriages. Marriage in that time carried with it economic protections for the wife. But since there was no marriage, She didn't have those protections. This wasn't the case for her. The Samaritan woman sees the truth and declares that Jesus is a prophet. Now, the Samaritans only saw the Pentateuch, remember, the first five books of the Bible, as inspired. And so they looked at Deuteronomy 34.10 as a source of Messianic prophecy. They believed in a Messiah-like figure known as a Teheb. And this was a prophet that would arise that would be greater than Moses. With no other claims of a prophet, this makes Jesus the Messiah figure that the Samaritans are looking for. The woman then goes into another issue that divided Jews and Samaritans, and that's the issue of worship. We see that in John 4, 20-26. Remember, the Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. This was a historical mountain and is said to be the mountain that Abraham climbed to sacrifice Isaac the Samaritans built a temple on the mountain and that was destroyed by John Heracanus. Though the temple was destroyed, the mountain was still viewed as sacred. Now the rift was so strong between the two people groups that Samaritans were not welcome in the Jerusalem temple. So in this conversation with the Samaritan woman, our Lord Jesus Christ brings to mind Psalm 145.18, which says that the lord is near to those who call on him in truth. Now, though Jesus affirms the correctness of this Jewish version of worship in John 4:22, this is not a barrier to what he's trying to do here. Jesus speaks of the future when people will worship in spirit and truth. Now, this is something we take for granted now. At this time, it was believed that all prophecy had ceased. And so this prophecy from Jesus would have been seen, would have been heard loud and clear from this woman and from other listeners. And John four twenty three also brought to mind Wisdom six sixteen, which discussed wisdom seeking those who are worthy. And so Jesus, being personified wisdom, saw this poor Samaritan woman, who was a social outcast, and viewed, viewed as a sinner, as worthy. He saw her as worthy. In verse 25, we read about the woman discussing how the Messiah is coming and how he will teach. Now, this is important because I touched on this a moment ago. The Samaritans believed that the Messiah would come in the form of a teacher, not necessarily a Davidic king. And so Jesus used the language of the divine name from Exodus, I am. Now, as a Samaritan, the woman knew the story of Moses and already said that Jesus was the prophet. There was also a common idiom. There was also a common idiom in speech during this time where the hearer waited for a dramatic time uh, to make the final reveal. So here's what Jesus is doing here. He sees this woman as worthy. He talks about living water. And so all these things, all these little backgrounds, help us understand this passage a little more. So understanding these backgrounds helps us understand Scripture because sometimes we look, we read something, and we're putting it in our modern context, and it doesn't click. Okay, The meaning isn't there. But understanding these different scenarios happening, who the Samaritans were, the significance of worship, um, the significance of living water, all these things help us understand this very important passage in John's gospel a little more. So I hope that this, hope this is helpful to you all, because I, I learned a lot doing this study, but yeah. So read John's gospel. Obviously, obviously, John chapter 6 is powerful, but there's so much going on there. Sometimes we skip over it. Read this story of Jesus and the woman of the well in John 4, 126, and understand some of these backgrounds because it'll give you a different perspective. And if it does, it'll help enhance what Jesus is doing here with this woman who essentially society hated, nobody loved. And she was living with someone who wasn't her husband just so she she could have a roof over her head. But yet Jesus, no no matter what she did in her past, sees her as worthy. And just like today, no matter what we have done in our past, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, as as St. Paul tells us in the book of Romans. But Jesus died on the cross for us too. He sees us as worthy of his love and his mercy. So let's accept that.